Good evening, everyone. Good evening, Facebook Live. We're glad you're joining us tonight. We're going to be looking into the Word of God again. Uh, I'll be speaking next two Sunday nights. I think next Sunday night we're going to talk about uh, how to know the will of God, uh, how to discover the will of God. So I think that'll be a, a good message. Tonight we're going to talk about earnestly contending for the faith. And we're going to be in the book of Jude. So if you want to turn to the book of Jude. I'm probably not going to share much that you haven't heard before from some other pastor speaking about the book of Jude. Um, The book of Jude was written toward the end. It was written before the book of Revelation, but after many of the other books were written. And it deals with Jude, as he calls himself, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. That is James, who was the stepbrother of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're having two of Jesus' brothers. James addressed the uh, people in his book, and Jude is addressing people, and they are stepbrothers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says uh, that this book is to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. So this is often called one of the general epistles. That is, it's not addressed to any specific group. Not like the Galatians was a specific group, Colossians was a specific Timothy, there are specific groups. This one's not addressed to anybody in particular. It's addressed to anybody who is called, sanctified, and preserved in the, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's any believing person. So that means that if you're not a believing person, this book wasn't written for you. It's, it's not something that you need to be concerned about or worried about. It's for those people who have known Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Here's what he says. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, peace, and love. That is kind of a normal, standard um, greeting that's given to people. Often it's grace to you and peace from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Mercy. That is, he's saying, may God show us mercy. So there's something different he's wanting to show us here. This is something that's going on that he's very concerned about. It's not just grace. He's calling for mercy that we, we are in, in uh, getting into some kind of trouble here. Peace, that's when God puts everything back in its proper order again. When justice is there, when righteousness is there, peace follows it. You follow me? Uh, you're, if your engine in your car is firing on all its cylinders, it's got oil in it, and it is operating smoothly so that when you accelerate, it accelerates When all those parts are at work together, that's called your engine is at righteousness. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way it was designed to work. So it's in a just situation. It's in a righteous situation there. That brings everything in that engine to peace. You follow me? Everything in the engine is at peace now because all things are operating the way they're supposed to. Your body is operating the same way. You can know that when, when your body is in a righteous condition, that your immune system is working, your, all, all the systems are working properly, you will be at peace. When they're not working properly, you won't be at peace. Just as simple as that. That will produce anxiety, that can produce depression, that can produce all kinds of uh, psychological problems to us. So he's saying to this, mercy, peace, and then finally, and love be multiplied to you. So he's wanting these people, whoever these are, and if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is addressed to you. So he says, mercy, peace, and truth, or 
and love be multiplied to you. So that's, that is his prayer from God for you. That's not, he, he doesn't have mercy, peace, and love he can give. God has mercy, peace, and love. So he's asking God to give you mercy, peace, and love. And he's asking that it not just be given to you, but multiplied to you. All right? So here's what he says. Beloved, I was, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. So what do you want to write to them about? Our common salvation. The thing that we all have in common. Now that tells me this. Jude had been from Galilee. He was probably in Jerusalem at the Jerusalem Council, at that at Jerusalem elders. So he's there, and he's addressing people who are in Asia Minor, who are in Greece, who are in Rome. And that's several different ethnic groups. That can be the ethnic groups of the, the Grecians. That can be the ethnic groups of the Macedonians. That can be the Galatians. That can, uh, that can be any of those who are in Asia Minor. And there were multiple tribes in Asia Minor that those represent. So he is saying this. We all have this common salvation. I had a great time talking with uh, uh, Aaron Betzeli. We took them to lunch today, he and uh, Karen. And it is a joy to be able to talk to someone who is a Navajo who has the same salvation that we have. Same Savior. It is a joy. Yajak Tamang is going to be here August the 2nd. It's a joy to talk to Yajak because in India, in this, he's a Nepal, Nepalese living in Bengal. To listen to him talk about the Lord Jesus Christ the same way you do is a great joy. And to be able to write to somebody about our common salvation, to write to those people who are just like you. They have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what he wanted to do. Jude was excited about that common faith. But as he starts to write the letter, he starts to hear the reports. Oh, my goodness, there are some Gnostic teachings going on in Syria. What, what is that group in Turkey doing? There's something going on up in Turkey that these people are kind of modifying the gospel. And what's happened in Galatia? Here, the, the Galatians are being attacked by um, the legalists from Judah. Uh, the Judaism is attacking them there. So now they're being called back to do the law again. He's thinking, what, what has happened here? So while he's in the middle of writing that uh, for the um, common salvation, he says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. That's what I want to address in the first place. So I call this one the once for all delivered to the saints faith. The once for all delivered to the saints faith. Um, this book, like the book of James, has several words in it that are used only words, only once. James has some words that nobody else uses. Uh, Peter has some words that nobody else uses. Uh, and those words are called hapex legomena. Used once, legomena. The word means, hapex means used only once. And legomena means words. So words used only once. Okay. Well, the word he's using here to, des to describe this uh, faith which was once for all delivered, that once for all is the word hapex. There has been only one faith delivered. So whatever that faith was that you received from the apostles, that's the faith he's going to talk about, all right? 
So what I want to do is talk about what was the faith that was delivered by the apostles to them. So faith comes in at least two categories. Letter A, it's the full body of revealed truth about Jesus being the Christ. And letter B, it's the operating principle of the restored kingdom of God as stated in the new covenant for Israel and Judah. So on the one hand, it represents the full body of truth, of revealed truth. I can say it represents the Bible. Here's the, the, the faith that was revealed to us once for all. This is the one that was revealed to everybody. This is the one Paul preached. It's the one Peter preached. It's the one all the apostles preached. It's the same body of truth, and it's a revealed body of truth. It's not them sitting down and having some philosophical discussions at the local pub and saying, hey, guys, what do you think if we did this? What if you added this to it? How about let's add this? How about let's do this? No, this was something that's being revealed to them by living God, much in the same way Moses got it. These guys were getting this whole faith revealed to them. And this is the one that's telling them who Jesus is. This is the follow-up to Luke 24, 44, where Jesus set down the disciples and he explained to them going all the way from the songs and the beginning and the prophets all the way through to the end of the Old Testament and showing them why the Christ must suffer, showing them why he is that Christ, proving to them what it is. That's the once-for-all delivered faith. Everybody with me? So let's talk about what the principles of that faith are. The full body of revealed truth about Jesus being the Christ states this. Number one, Jesus is God incarnate, the Son of God, the complete fullness of God in body. Now, for someone to be called the Son of God was not unusual in those days. Okay? Um, Julius Caesar was called the Son of God. Uh, that, that happened to him more as an experience, something that started coming to him, you know, the, because he was so victorious in his battles and that sort of thing, they started applying the title, the son of God to him. Well, when they applied that title, the son of God, what do you do to the next Caesar that comes along? Oh, he must be the son of God too. So it didn't become unusual to call the Caesar the sons of God, but no one believed they were immortal. No one believed that they were really gods in the flesh. They were the offspring of God, but they, they were mortal. They could die. Julius Caesar obviously died. Augustus obviously died. So there's a whole lot of these guys that died. They didn't see them as the fullness of God. What made Jesus unique as the Son of God is that he is the fullness of God in bodily form. He is that. And... Uh, that's the thing that's revealed to us in this body of truth. That's part of the faith. And he tells us to earnestly contend for that. You can't back out on that one, kids. That's called a fundamental, okay? And just so you'll know a little history here. In the late 1800s, well, actually starting about 1860, somewhere in there, in Europe, there started to be a higher criticism. This is a criticism of the Bible. They started saying, look, we, we don't think the Bible is true. We, so, matter of fact, that had happened earlier with Thomas Jefferson and, a, and Thomas Paine. A variety of those that we call our founding fathers had already looked the scriptures over and said, these things are bogus. Uh, what Jesus did as a moral teacher is good, but miracles, no, we can't buy that. That's, that's not enough. You know, that's, that's too much over the top. 
They were enlightenment fellows, and they did not believe that Jesus did any miracles. He certainly couldn't be the Son of God. There's no such thing as the Son of God. So they were denying that that far back. By the time you get to the 1860s, you're now looking at the Bible and saying, the Bible isn't really even the Word of God. That is just what tradition has laid on us. There's no proof that it's the Word of God. And they started just tearing the Bible apart. To offset that, here in America, uh, and in some places in Europe, but primarily in America, a group of people began to gather together from all denominations, and they met in New York at a place called Niagara Falls, and they had what was called the Niagara Bible Conference. It went on all summer long. People took their vacations, took time off in the summer to go up there and camp out where they heard every day four or five messages a day, and in through the night, they heard messages about why the Bible is the Word of God, why Jesus is God incarnate, and on and on they went with all this, why Jesus must be coming back bodily, why Jesus rose from the grave bodily, uh, why Jesus was crucified, and they went through all those things. This was a large body of truth. Uh, There was an individual in St. Louis that actually was in charge of that. Uh, James Brooks is his name, and James Brooks was the pastor over at the, what became, uh, uh, was it Covenant Presbyterian Church? What's, there's, there's a big Presbyterian church over in St. Louis that he was the pastor of for a while. He's the pastor who taught C.I. Schofield the dispensational system. So C.I. Schofield wrote a, a notes for a Bible that's called the, the Schofield Bible. All right? Well, James Brooks was the one in charge of getting these Niagara conferences together, making sure all the speakers showed up for it. And two brothers uh, heard all of these messages that were so convinced that this needs to be out in everybody. You can't just be those who camp there. Everybody in America needs to know this, that they drew all those sermons together and they put them together in a volume, a 20-volume set of books that they printed themselves and sent to every pastor in America. So every pastor in America was getting free this set of books, this 20-volume set of books that was called The Fundamentals of the Faith. So If you had that 20-volume set and you believed the things that were written in it, guess what name you got? You were called a fundamentalist because you believed in these fundamentals. And that's the things we're talking about here that earnestly contend for the faith. Well, the fundamentalists were um, opposed by what came to be known as the modernists. And the modernists said, no, science should be applied to the Bible and if you, if you can't prove it by science in the Bible, it's not worth believing. So we don't have that. So since you couldn't prove the resurrection, there is no resurrection. Since you couldn't believe, um, believe that there was a, a science could not explain a virgin birth, Jesus obviously wasn't born of a virgin. And since science can't explain how miracles took place, that got canceled. Well, if you're going to cancel those, what are you going to do with the Old Testament? Well, there wasn't any crossing of the Red Sea, because that's impossible. And so there wasn't a general flood, a worldwide flood, so that's impossible. So pretty soon, you have nothing left of the Old or the New Testament. And then they started going back and saying, look, 
The book of Genesis wasn't written by a single author. It's not Moses that's an author. This book was written by at least four different authors because we can find four different names of God in here. And these, so in other words, they just attacked it royally. Okay, What we're looking at here are the fundamentals of the faith. The fundamentalists said, we can't sacrifice these. These are too important. And one of those was the incarnation of Jesus. He's God come in the flesh, and we're not giving up on that one, all right? Number two, Jesus has the fulfillment of the prophecies given to the fathers, all right? They believed that Jesus, they, they were reading Old Testament prophecies, and Jesus fulfilled them. Here he's going to be born at Bethlehem, so what, what must be true? He's born in Bethlehem. So when he's born in Bethlehem, that's no surprise to them. He fulfilled the prophecies. And each of those prophecies that Jesus fulfilled they believed them. They held those as the faith once delivered. You follow where we're coming from? So that faith, the fulfillment of prophecies, the way that was attacked was just to say there is no such thing as prophecies. The things that are written are written much later than you've given them credit for. Jeremiah really wasn't a prophet talking about a new covenant. He was written after Jesus came, started talking about this new covenant. So Jeremiah is a book written after Jesus came, so it's history, not prophecy. And they tore Daniel up. Daniel is history. It's not prophecy. This was not written before uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and the Grecian Rebellion. All, it, don't know. it was written after that, and he's just writing history. Well, once you take care of the prophecies and get rid of them gone, you can't call Jesus fulfilling prophecies as any real thing. So this guy, Jude, is telling us earnestly contend for the things because those prophecies that we believe were fulfilled were before the writing of Jude. So it's not history or it'd be after the writing of Jude. It's before Jude. So it is uh, fulfillment of prophecy. Number three, we can't give up on Jesus as the creating agent of God, the word of God. Jesus is the one through whom God created things. Now, though we don't know exactly how that happens or how that works, you don't have to know that to know that that's what God said. When God says, let there be light, who's creating the light? The Lord Jesus. He is the light. So is, is that saying that God was creating Jesus? No, not at all. Jesus was the agent that brought light into the world. If he says, now let the earth bring forth vegetation, what does it do? Jesus creates vegetation, and the Spirit gives it life. So you have the Father speaking, the Son creating, and the Spirit giving it life. Father speaks, Son creates, Spirit gives it life. Father uh, calls people to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ dies for them, and the Spirit gives them life. You follow? It's the same thing. It's the interaction of the three, uh, th the three in one. And Jesus is the creating agent of God. That's the Word of God. We don't give up on that one. Why is that important? Well, if you give up on creation, you're giving up on one very important part about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you say there was no creation, if you contend that no, this thing all, all happened by a big bang somewhere out of the, the universe, then you don't have a Jesus anymore. You understand where we're coming from? You don't have a faith anymore. That's why that doctrine is created. It's created to get rid of Jesus as that creative agent. Number four, Jesus as living a holy, righteous life of trusting obedience in his Father God. 
right? Now, here's what we mean by that. We often focus our attention on the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are important things. But kids, if he didn't live a holy life, then his sacrifice doesn't mean anything. Why? You don't offer a blemished thing. God hates blemished offerings. So the only way that he could receive Jesus as a true offering is if Jesus is unblemished. And Jesus is living a life in which the Father says, in you I am well pleased. Okay, That's Jesus pleasing the Father. Now what pleases the Father is faith. So what do I know Jesus lived by? Faith. He is having faith in his Father. He's having faith in who he is. He's having faith in his own calling. You follow where we're at? That's what he's got faith in. That's what he's trusting, fully and completely. So Jesus living a holy, righteous life of trusting obedience in his Father God is an important part of that faith that was once delivered. He lived a holy life. That's the only way he could exchange lives with us. You see, in, in the crucifixion, he's taking our lives and nailing them to his cross. That destroys us. That, that kills us. The only way we can have a righteous life back again is if he had a righteous life and exchanged that righteous life for us so that we can say, Christ made him, uh, God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So that's how that works. Jesus is righteous. As a righteous offering, he's offering himself. He dies for us. He's raised again for us. And he exchanges his life for ours. That is a, a fundamental of our faith. Number five, Jesus innocently suffering and dying for our sins without complaint or resistance, publicly crucified, ridiculed, and rejected, buried publicly, and guarded. So that's all important stuff, every bit of it, and we want to maintain that. That's to earnestly contend for that faith. It's to make sure we understand why that was important and earnestly contend for it. Jesus did not offer any argument. He did not offer any resistance when they were ridiculing him, when they were beating him, when they were slapping him around. He could have very easily and did not. He did not complain about it. He took everything that was coming to him, and it's, he's doing it in our place, just like his life was in our place. Let, 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 me, let me put it this to you this way. The life that Israel was supposed to live and didn't, Jesus did. I want you to think with me for just a moment. Jesus, he's born in Bethlehem. Where does he go after Bethlehem? To Egypt. And coming out of Egypt, he comes back. He's, he's, he's in Egypt. He's hiding from the uh, Herod. And he comes out of Egypt. Why? Because my son have I called out of Egypt. It's what happened to Israel. So they're called out of Egypt. They bring him back here. One of the next things he does is go to be tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Where was it that Israel spent 40 years? In the wilderness. So Jesus going 40 days in the wilderness to be tempted by the same adversary that tempted them. And now he's passing the test. Where Israel didn't pass it, he does pass it. And where Israel didn't live a life of faith, he is living a life of faith. You see where we're coming from? So everything they didn't do, he's now living 
in their behalf for them. And the father is watching his son live out this life that Israel did not live out. They are now completing by the Lord Jesus Christ what they didn't do before. And guys, that same thing's happening for us. Jesus is living by faith the way God expects us to live, and he's doing it in our behalf so that you could say from Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You follow me? Stay with me here. And the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, that's the faith of the Son of God, not faith in the Son of God. Faith of the Son of God. Here's the deal. In an exchanged life, whose faith are you working with now? It's his. You, you follow where I'm coming from? It's his faith you're working with. How, how can I say that? By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That's the gift he gave to you. He's giving you the gift of grace, so that it's not by something that you did, and he's giving you the gift of faith. That's Christ's faith operating in you so that you'll trust Christ fully. So that's, that's how Galatians 2.20 is working, all right? Um, so he's, Jesus innocently suffering and dying for our sins. Now, there might be plenty who would say, well, I don't know how innocent was, but he did suffer. We will give you that. He did suffer and he did die. But we're not going to give you that he died for your sins. He just died. He was an infidel. You know, he blasphemed and they wanted him killed because of his blasphemy. And he opposed the Roman church or the, the Roman empire. Therefore, they had to kill him. He was seditionist. He was trying to overthrow the government. Okay. So that's why he died. And we're saying, no, that's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures teach us that he lived a holy life and didn't complain, did, was, did suffer, and was crucified, and he was crucified for our sins. That's why he died. All right? That's not something we're going to give up. That's something we earnestly contend for. All right? Let's go to number six. Jesus raised from the dead according to the scriptures to give us eternal life. Multiple witnesses seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's significant that Jesus didn't just rise from the dead, show himself to a couple people, and take off. Why is he hanging around for 40 days? You know, you can kind of say, yeah, they imagined he was there. They saw that there for maybe the first week. But after the first week, it's not, it's, it's really hard to deny it anymore. They're eating together, and he's teaching them. This is not a dream they're having. They're not dreaming up some spirit. They're not thinking over something that would really be nice, wouldn't it? No, he was alive with them for 40 days teaching them, giving them everything about the kingdom. They were willing to die for that. It's a dream? No. But a reality? Yes. They're willing to die for that. So uh, Jesus raised from the dead according to the Scriptures to give us eternal life. There might be somebody who say, though we don't believe that resurrection is possible, we can see that how in their minds that Jesus uh, being raised up was important to them. Now, 
uh, I was in uh, Kansas City going to Calvary Bible College, and I was listening to some Bible programs. I was going from place to place. I had a job, and uh, between the house and the job and the school, I was listening to uh, the Christian radio. And I'm listening to a guy talking about uh, the, it being Easter time and him, him saying, you know, a lot of people at Easter time now believe in Jesus' resurrection. Well, you know, if you need Jesus to be raised from the dead, then he is. If, you, if you're believing that you, you need to have a new life, you do. So Jesus is here by his resurrection to give you a whole new view on life again. I'm listening to him, and I recognize this guy is the pastor of the church where my buddy that lives across the street is the youth pastor. And I said to him, does your pastor believe in the resurrection? He said, of course he believes in the resurrection. He's a Christian pastor. I said, that doesn't mean he believes in the resurrection. I was listening to him today on the radio. I don't think he believes in the resurrection. I said, of course he does. I said, I challenge you to go ask him, do you believe the resurrection? So he said, I went to him and I said to him, hey, I got a buddy. He's got a bet going with me. He said, do you, you do believe in the resurrection, don't you? He said, the guy looked back up at me and said, if you need me to, I do. He said, if I need you to, what does that mean? Well, if that's important to you, that it's, our friendship is based on that, yeah, I believe in resurrection. He said, no, no. Do you believe in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? He said, is that what you want me to believe? He said, no, I, I, I don't, I, it, that's not, I'm just asking you, do you believe that or not? And he said, look, that's not necessary. You don't have to believe in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What you have to believe in is the old life is over, and now that you trust in Jesus Christ, you have a new life. That's, that's what resurrection is. It's a, it's a whole new life. And he came back and said, I'm getting a new job. I can't believe this. I, I don't want to be in a church where God doesn't believe in the resurrection. That's not even, that's not the church. And so he quit that job and started working at a publishing house somewhere. Guys, this is not something we're going to rest, fight about. Jesus Christ is alive from the dead. That's a fundamental that we earnestly contend for that faith. All right, number seven. Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand to return to earth at the Father's command to destroy his enemies and take full possession of the cosmos as its total sovereign ruler. So do we believe in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. Is that a point of, of the faith that was delivered to us that's important for us to keep doing it? Yes. It's to earnestly contend for. Jesus is coming back. Yes, it has been 2,000 years. And yes, he's not back yet. I, I give you that. I see that. But that doesn't mean he's not coming back. He is coming back. And this is something we earnestly contend for. So when you're looking for the once-for-all delivered to the saints type of faith, it's this one. Those are the things that we hold to be absolutely true and must keep them. Fair enough? All right, let's look at the next one. It's also the operating principle of the restored kingdom of God as stated in the new covenant for Israel and Judah. Look, the old system was this. Here was an expectation that's laid on you, and it's laid on you so that you'll understand you're not going to do it. You can't do it. You're supposed to cooperate fully with God 
in his world working together with him, not as a separate entity for each other. You're not doing a job for God. If you follow where I'm coming from, you're not doing a job for God. No, what you're doing is cooperating with God to do the work of God. That's where you're supposed to, that is not what we wanted. We backed out on that one with our parents and said, no, we'll do things ourselves. We'll, we'll show God that we really are righteous. So the first step our parents make is to run hide somewhere, get away from the presence of God, put on an apron and cover up your shame so that you're now creating for yourself works that cover up what you, what you truly are. And then you deny it. You start blaming other people for what happened to you. What's Adam and Eve do? They go hide from God. They create an apron that covers up their shame, and now they blame each other. You know, Adam says, clearly wasn't me. The woman you gave to me, that's what caused me to do that. The woman says, hey, whoa, whoa, clearly not me. The snake you made did that to me. So, I, you know, I was fooled by the snake. So it's not really my fault either. So nobody takes any fault for it. I'm never at fault. Those are the three things that we usually like to do. Run, hide, cover up, and shift the blame. Okay? That's the way we like to do things. That's an old operating principle where we've been trying to do things apart from God. You cannot bear fruit apart from God. Not possible. Can't be done. All you'll ever do is frustrate yourself and disappoint yourself. You can't be justified before God doing things that way. So the new operating principle is this. No life without death. No life without death. You are born in sins and trespasses. You are dead in those sins and trespasses. Let's make sure we understand dead. Dead means to be separated from. It doesn't mean to cease to exist. It means to be separated from. Listen, when a believer dies, he doesn't cease to exist. When an unbeliever dies, he doesn't cease to exist. The spirit of that person departs from the body, separates from the body. That's when you know someone's dead. When the spirit has separated from the body, that's death. And we, when we are separated from God, that's spiritual death. You follow me? So hell is eternal death. Why? Because you're always separated from God. When you die, you're separated from your body as a believer, and that, that spirit goes to heaven waiting for the time that it gets to have that resurrection. So the spirit and the body are brought back together again. That's called a resurrection. You're not going to live as a spirit forever. You have to have a body sooner or later. You're a human being. God created human beings with bodies, and you're going to have a new body someday. That's a part of what the whole scheme of this is. But he's made it so that there is no death without life. You, this, this old covenant, unless there can be a death, you're still under the old covenant. I, I'm speaking to like, like I was a Jewish person, okay? Uh, and the illustration he uses in Romans 7 is this one, that a woman under the law, as long as she is married to a man, uh, she is his wife. But if she commits adultery, if she's with another man, she commits adultery and can die for that. That's death. However, if the husband dies, she's free to marry someone else. But there's only life for her after the death of her husband. 
You follow where, where we're coming from there? That's the illustration he's giving. And so he wants us to understand there can't be life without death. So in order for us to have eternal life, he has to kill the old man in us. He has to crucify the old guy. Because the old guy that's in me right now, that thing that's iniquitous, that's twisted away, that's perverted out of the way of God, that old guy is the sin generator. It's what's continuing to produce sin in my life all the time. If it could be killed, then it would stop producing sin. Now, that doesn't mean that my body won't know how to sin. Sure does. It had years of being taught by the old man how to do that stuff. So it's a habit for me. I'm just going to return to my habits. So what he does, he crucifies the old sin generator in us, that one that creates sin in us, crucifies it, lays it out of the way so that you're now under no condemnation. That's all taken care of. He's justified you by Christ's death. Everybody with me? He is going to raise Jesus from the dead, and if you died with Christ and his death, when you're also raised with Christ at his resurrection, that's where you got eternal life. You got eternal life from the resurrection. The old man was crucified by Jesus' crucifixion. The new life, this new man, is alive because of his resurrection. All right? Everybody with me? All right. That's the new principle. You're not going to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ until the old guy dies. You got to get rid of the old guy. It's not you that's going to get rid of him. Christ gets rid of him. You follow me? You're not just saying, I'm not going to live that way anymore, and you, you say, I'm turning over a new leaf. That won't do it. It won't do it. You can't turn over a new leaf. Old guy got to die, period. He's got to die, and that's what he does. He's crucified, knowing this, Romans 6, 6 says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be rendered inoperative. It's not working anymore. In other words, the old guy is not there to produce anything. If you're going to sin after that, it'll be because you know what the habits are of doing it, and friend, those habits are not under condemnation because you're a new person now. Everybody with me on, on this? That's the faith once delivered to all saints. That's the one you've got to earnestly contend for. So let's go real quickly on the backside. So here's what we know. The faith that was once delivered to the saints says we are justified by grace through faith as the gift of God and not by works. We're, we're going to have to accept that. Number three, we're going to say we're sanctified by the same principle. Listen to what Colossians 2 says. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. In the same way you receive Jesus, walk in him that way. That's your sanctification. How did you receive Jesus? How many good deeds did you do to get Jesus? Zip. That was something that was done by Jesus. What you did was accept the work that Jesus did for you. Follow me? So in sanctification, you're going to accept the work that Jesus did for you. I know I've used the illustration of, that, of going fishing in, in the halibut fishing, and I'm, I'm going to use it again. I don't mean to bore you with it. I just mean to tell you it's such an important principle. When, when we were in Alaska and Wayne says we're going to go fishing, we're going to go halibut fishing. What's the goal in halibut fishing? Catching halibut, right? That's the goal. Is it to catch catfish? No. Is it to catch crappie? 
No. Is it to fly kites? No. Is it to watch whales? No. That's something that might, might happen, but it's not what you're going to do. Is it to watch seals, sea lions? No. What's the goal of halibut fishing? Catching halibut, right? So when you get in the boat, we got into a boat of a guy we trusted fully. He's got 40 years' experience of guiding. He knows these waters. He knows the currents. He knows where the halibuts are. He's got special electronic equipment that's showing him, yep, bunch of them right down there. This is a good place for us to fish. He has the equipment. He knows how to catch halibut. He knows how to show me how to catch halibut. He knows how to show me how to reel things in. There's a special way to reel those things in. They're not, they're not two-pound crappie. These things are 100 pounds, and they can come in. They're big, and they, they feel like a log. You know, you feel like you're just, you got the, well, anyway, I'll just say this. He is the one who knows how to fish. I'm not. Now, I could go stand in the middle of that boat saying, you know, I don't like boats, and I really don't like oceans, and all this rocking around is starting to bug me quite a little bit. So I'm just going to stand here and watch eagles. What's the goal of halibut fishing? Watching eagles? No, it's catching halibut, right? So as a believer, if I get on Jesus' boat and I say, you know, it, this is, feels kind of shaky, I think what I like to do is watch eagles. That's rebellion. You understand what I'm saying? Or if I tell Jesus, look, I know you like fishing this way, but we noodle in the Ozarks. We just reach in the water and grab a fish. That's the way you just, you know, trap him in there. I am in rebellion. If I took my own little rod and reel with my own little crappie jigs and I tossed my own little crappie jig and my little bass popper out there, I'm catching nothing. Why? Because there's nothing in that water. They're down there. I've got to do things his way. You follow me? I have to deny who I was and how I fish and how I do things. I'm denying I'm not on land anymore, guys. It doesn't feel like land. Yes, there's a solid boat under me, but the solid boat under me is doing this. It's not the same world. You follow me? So Jesus has me on this boat with him to catch halibut, not to watch eagles. Not to sit down and think, I'm just going to look at my phone for a while. Oh, I wonder who's on Facebook. I'm not doing that. That's rebellion against him. Everybody follow where I'm at? We're there to fish. And I've got to listen to what the Lord Jesus Christ says about that. If he says, you're going to let this lure go down and it's going to hit the bottom, and then I want you to pull it off the bottom. You're just going to rock back and forth in this action here. And that halibut's going to see that thing and he's going to run over there. Pop on a hold of it, and he's, you're going to yank him in, all right? And you're going to do it this way. So I start out, and I'm, I'm trying to hold my rod and reel like I would it, at home, and I'm doing this sort of thing like this, and he's saying, uh, he's going to pull that right out from under you. Get that under your arm. Put it there. Got a hold of it right here. Now I'm reeling stuff in, and I've got my whole body to hold again. You follow me? You see, that guide knew things I was supposed to do that I didn't know. When you're following Jesus, you are trusting someone who's been there before. 
You're trusting someone who rose again from the dead. He's been in death. He suffered everything you have. You can't have a psychological problem that he didn't face. He's got rejection. He's got all kinds of stuff he's trying to work with. The potential for bitterness was all over the place with him. He's dealing with ignorant folk. He's dealing with folk that have no clue what he's talking about, and he's still teaching. He's been through, you, you can't name a psychological problem that he didn't already win for you. He's living that life for you. Everybody with me? He's teaching you how to fish. Fish his way. Don't, don't fish some other way. Don't noodle. Don't use crappie rigs. Use his pole. Use his stuff. You are fully gifted. You have everything you need. Earnestly contend for that faith, kids. Earnestly contend for that faith. As it goes on, one must be born again by the Spirit. You, you can't, I'll just say this, you can't disciple a non-born again person. You can't do that. If that person is not born again, you can teach them manners. You teach them how to dress. You can teach them the words to say in a prayer. You can teach them when to bow their head in prayer. But you cannot disciple someone who's not born again. They cannot be a follower of Christ if they're not born again. Earnestly contend for that, kids. Earnestly contend for that. For a number of years, we've been trying to train people who are not born again to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't train. They don't train. You can put a tux on a pig, but he's still a pig. You follow where I'm coming from? All right. So number five. You must work by the power and enabling of the Holy Spirit through Christ, uh, in Christ, for the glory of Christ. All right. Number six, all appeals to the flesh of the old man are useless for either justification or sanctification. Just telling people, try harder, give it a little more, read more Bible. If you just read more Bible, I know you'd be better. No, not if I don't apply what, if I'm not understanding what I'm reading and I don't apply what I'm reading, you're just telling me read another book. I didn't gain any more from that. You follow me? You, the, the person's got to be, you, you just can't appeal to the flesh or the old man. Christ and his kingdom are to be sought supremely. That's what you're looking for. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added to you. You're not looking for anything else. That becomes your new motive and goal. You say, but I can't do that. I got a job. Yes, Yes, you are going to be doing the same mundane stuff you always did. What you're doing is changing your boss. That's what you're doing. And that's what we say in this next one, number eight. All the work of the believer can be converted to valuable good works by changing the one for whom it is done. From the simplest things as eating and drinking to our daily employment or chores to create households. Look, he said this, in whatever you do, if whether it's eating or drinking, glorify God. What does that tell me? There's a good way to drink? Yes. There's a good way to pick up a glass of water. Lord, I thank you so much for water. This is a wonderful thing. What a great gift water is. Drink her down. You just changed who the boss is. You understand what it is? It's not just for you you're drinking that water. You're, you're calling on the Lord Jesus Christ by Thanksgiving to make that water spark life into you. You understand where we're coming from? It's, it's taking the dishes and say, I'm doing these dishes because nobody else in the family will do it. Yeah. Change your boss. If you're doing it for the family, stop it. 
I know it sounds a little weird, but if you're doing it for the family, stop it. Why? They don't even understand what you're doing. They're just glad the dishes are not in the sink. And that's all it is. They may never say, are you the one that did those dishes? You? Oh, what can I say? You're the most wonderful guy on your own? No one asked you? No one made you? Well, if you look and say, "Mm, but I hated every minute of it. Well, you just lost it. Change who you're working for. People don't know enough to say thank you. People don't know enough to say some good thing about you. Just do it and do it quietly for Jesus. Okay? Well, there are faith thieves, but our time is gone, and I'm not going to take more time with it. I can tell you this. Faith, your faith can be stolen, and this book about, of Jude is all about how your faith can be taken right away from you. You can listen to the wrong people. You can neglect your faith. You can not pay attention. You can not pay diligence and vigilance to what's going on around you and wind up realizing, how did I get here? What did, how did I start making these compromises? And you'll start seeing a little compromise here, a little compromise there, bigger one here, bigger one here. And once you got started with the compromises, the next one became easy. Okay? So there are those thieves. We, we can look at those at another time. But uh, comments or thoughts about what we talked about here, earnestly contending for the faith? Put up a fight for it, kids. It's worth it. The word he uses for earnestly contending is a word that has the word agony in it. It is a compound word with agony in it. In other words, you're fighting so hard it's agonizing. It's painful. This is something you're not going to give up on. These things are so important. Matter of fact, you can lose what your faith is about if you lose its content. Doesn't mean you're lost. I didn't say that. I'm just simply saying you can lose what your faith was about. You, you, don't, you don't remember anymore. You wake up one day and somebody's saying, if you were to die tonight, do you know you go to heaven? I hope so. Wait a minute. You were a person who knew 10 years ago. What happened to you? Well, you know, I wasn't paying attention. And it just doesn't mean to me what it used to mean. Oh, stop. It means you've neglected it. Plain and simple. All right. Thoughts, comments? All right. Father, thank you so much for letting us have another opportunity to look into your word. You're a great and glorious Father and a wonderful Savior. We ask in Jesus' name, help us to do our work according to the principles you've laid down for us. Help us to earnestly contend for the faith. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll look to see you on Wednesday night. Another wonderful time on its way on Wednesday night. Hey, listen, let me, let me just say this too. This doesn't have to be on, on air, or, or if it's still on air, that's fine too. The book, The Complete Green Letters, even if you're not going to be joining us on Wednesday nights, buy that book and read it. That is an important book to read. It will tell you the things we're talking about. It'll tell you about the things we're working on, why time is so important, why appropriation is so important, why identification with the Lord Jesus Christ is so important. Please get that. Why self-denial and the cross are so important. You need to know the information that's in there. So if you would, uh, get that book and read it. All right? God bless you.